an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. For those of you who are um, mental health folks, my theoretical background includes having studied a lot of different areas. In clinical psychology, um, the cognitive, behavioral, and humanistic um, approaches to, were strongly recommended. My doctoral program, Family Systems, was a big part of what I learned. Since leaving uh, uh, my graduate studies, I have learned a lot about Thomistic psychology, something called AEDP, which is another name for this deep affect work, which is sort of a modern version of, of psychodynamic approaches. Um, another, the stages and processes and context of change model, sometimes called the trans-theoretical model. And finally, uh, EMDR is a, a particular way of, of dealing with um, trauma. I have learned something from each of these approaches. Um, uh, I am not just any one of them, but that might help you to get a sense of where I'm coming from. With um, Thomas More, I would like to say that I do none harm. I say none harm. I think none harm. I am psychology's true servant, but God's first. And I would like to believe that this is that uh, others would find that to be true as well. Oops. Now, how did, okay. Okay. Um, unlike what the popular media would have us believe and what some of the leading mental health professions have implicitly, if not explicitly, suggested, homosexuality has not been shown to be innate, immutable, or without significant risk to medical, psychological, and relational help. Another, these are points I'm going to make. Another point I will make is that, um, that attempting to help someone deal with or resolve unwanted same-sex attraction has, in fact, we do have evidence that it can be effective for people. And there is no evidence to think that it is particularly harmful to those who attempt to experience it. That is not to say that a given person hasn't been harmed or that someone may not have, may have misapplied or otherwise have treated someone unethically as a result of it. Um, but, but I guess one way of starting, and, and, and I have to say that I have a different kind of passion when I'm talking about the professional side. Uh, and let me just begin with this. How many people here know that the state of California has passed a law, which is not being enforced because of civil sanctions, but has passed a law that would make it um, unethical, illegal, for a mental health professional to offer counseling to a minor to deal with unwanted same-sex attraction. Does everybody know that? Is that, that commonly known? Okay, some of you don't know that. All right. Um, the organization I'm involved with, NARTH, is supporting efforts to challenge that. Um, um, but, but, but you think of what that would mean, that um, the thought is that um, a person ought never to be allowed to seek that kind of help if he or she wants it. Um, the original law covered adults, but then it kept being winnowed down, and finally they decided they could pass it if it was simply uh, dealing with children. 
uh, and that even if parents wanted this to be a possibility for their child, the law would uh, prevent that from happening. So this is the context in which I'm coming at, at this now. Um, all right. <clears throat> I speak of SSA or same-sex attraction instead of homosexuality or gay, lesbian, bisexual, or whatever. Uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. First, um, there are many people who do experience um, an attraction, if you will, either for same-sex gratification or, especially for women, it's more often a, an attraction for same-sex emotional intimacy. Um, but there are, there are enough, many people experience the attraction and do not act on them. Some people may have acted on them briefly or periodically. Um, clearly, um, there are many people who have same-sex attraction who would not qualify as, as under the gay, lesbian, bisexual, et cetera, labels. I think it's fair to say that, um, that some people might use these labels in ignorance, but generally if someone uses this label, they are, speak, they are identifying themselves with a particular lifestyle, uh, that is clearly not true of all people who experience same-sex attraction. So we consistently use this term and I will use it throughout my talk. Same-sex attraction is not innate. It means it is not inborn. There is no evidence to say that. Now, does this mean that our genes, uh, no, do our genes make us do it? Um, I have a good friend who is a, uh, gosh, well, biochemistry and lots of, he, he's, a, he's clearly the hard science kind of guy. Anyway, um, and I will, his, uh, um, I will have his website in a second. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, his, uh, the link to his website. But the bottom line is, properly, if we properly understand, genes don't make us do anything. Genes create proteins. In one sense, genes don't even make us act heterosexually. They give us the possibility to act heterosexually, or if you will, homosexually, but they don't make us do anything. Um, in 1998, the American Psychological Association in its guarded words said this, there is considerable, considerable recent evidence to suggest that biology, including genetic or inborn hormonal factors, play a significant role in a person's sexuality. It's the closest that as an organization they would come to saying people are born that way, but in a sense, um, they did not correct anybody who used that as, ev as sort of the professional evidence, yeah, well, people are born that way. For a, a decade, that was in fact what people were um, uh, believing. I'm sorry, let me get back to this. Now, in 2008, 10 years later, they changed their tune a bit. Most people do not know they changed their tune. Again, um, the, you know, the very first ethical principle for the, psych the APA, the Psychologist Code of Ethics, is that we, uh, um, uh, we correctly identify what we do and stand for, and we will correct someone else um, if they misunderstand and in public misrepresent what we do. Well, in 2008, um, this is what their document reads. Um, there is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. 
although much research has, has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. That's a mouthful. But think about what it says. And but also think about, um, um, let me just, a quick poll. Um, how many in here would say you have heard it clearly stated that people are born that way? Anybody? Okay. How many of here have, have heard you say that the APA has disavowed that position? Anybody? All right. Um, I am cynical a bit. Uh, later on, I, I asked the question, who are we going to trust here? But in areas of human sexuality, the, the mental health profession, sadly, um, um, are not very humane, uh, authentically human. All right. Um, the, the question of, of um, are people born that way? Um, on your left is a, it's a picture of me. On my right is my identical twin brother. Um, supposedly, the, the research that the APA was citing, that there are reasons to think that, uh, that biology and so on is a key, uh, um, is a key determinant, um, were based on early twin research. It's interesting that the, the, the early twin research at best showed that maybe 50% 50 of the people in that study, um, if, if one twin was, uh, had same-sex attraction, I mean, to use my terms, not theirs, the other one would or wouldn't. So in other words, half the time someone would, and half the time someone wouldn't share that same-sex uh, experience. All right. Now, if something were truly genetically determined, you couldn't have that. I mean, that, that would, in other words, true genetic determination of medical conditions and whatnot does not work that way. Um, the early studies were done of what we call convenience samples, like you hang outside a gay bar or whatever, and so you interview people. Um, the better studies we have today done of more population studies, and it would appear that between 10 and 15% of twins, if one identical twin has same-sex attraction, only one in 10, basically, uh, would also sh uh, would, would share it. Um, so again, 10%, 15%, again, um, Whatever may be true, uh, genes and biology and so on do not determine it. That's not saying there may not be an influence and other things, issues can, be, can come in like temperament and so on, but the bottom line is people are not born that way. I think it's irresponsible, of the, of the, um, especially of the American Psychological Association to permit people to misbelieve things uh, and use them as an as a, uh, authority for what in fact they don't officially stand for themselves. People are not born that way. Here's two, if you want to read much more about it, here's a great site. Um, it comes out of New Zealand. Uh, uh, Neil Whitehead, I visited him several years ago in New Zealand. But My Genes Made Me Do It is his book. But My Genes is his website. Again, um, all kinds of good stuff. Narth.com has more studies than you'd ever want to read um, about various things. But if, again, if, you, if somebody simply wants to look at what's being said, you'll find stuff there. All right. In terms of what does seem to influence same-sex attraction, I like to say that I'm speaking to everyone and to and about no one in particular. Um, I learned this of all things uh, when I was an undergraduate. My major was philosophy. I unofficially minored in theology. 
but I also unofficially minored in business. In, a bus in an undergraduate management class, I learned good philosophy. In some ways, everyone's alike, like we're all human. In some ways, some people are alike. They're men and women and whatever, whatever. But in some ways, each person is unique. Again, each person has his or her own story. And so what may be true about some may not be true for a given individual. In, um, in, in psychology, we talk about the risk factor model, which means that um, certain experiences may predispose or make it more likely that a person will develop some things or not develop other things, but um, uh, they don't guarantee it or, in a sense, determine it. Uh, a, an ouch example I like to use, but because it's relevant for people who develop same-sex attraction, is sexual abuse. Sadly, compared to the general population, more, um, the percentage of people who have been uh, sexually abused is much higher among people with same-sex attraction than have not been. A rule of thumb is that for, for boys and men, the abuse has been from other boys or men. For women, it's been from other boys or men. In other words, it's opposite sex abuse seems to be more significant for women for who are impacted negatively. For boys and men, though, um, it's same-sex abuse or molestation is tough. But, but the point I'm trying to make here, though, is that, um, that just like not everybody who is abused abuses, there's some people who are not abused do abuse. Other people who were abused don't. The same thing is true with same-sex attraction. Some people were abused, develop it, but other people did not. Um, uh, and, and with any of the factors we talk about, that needs to be kept in, in, in mind. There's no one pathway that explains it. And, um, and the key is, again, getting to know each person in his or her own story. Some people would represent what you might say are common stereotypes of, or common experience many of the common things. Uh, but other people's their experience is very different. Uh, again, I think what I, risk factors include lots of things. Unmet needs, unhealed hurts, unresolved or unprocessed emotions and feelings, unresolved or unreconciled relationships unclear boundaries, unrealistic hopes and fears, um, and a number of co-occurring or, or the word comorbid difficulties, which may include compo other compulsions and addictions which are not managed or controlled. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a second. Um, all right. Now, um, what are some experiences associated with same-sex attraction? And again, some of this comes out of the, the, the article, the Who Am I article, uh, illustrates some of these things with the quotes from a variety of different therapists and so on. But, but essentially, what are some experiences that are commonly associated with this, even though remembering not everybody who experiences these things, will this be true? And also, um, the word perceived should be put here as well. In the, con in the continuum, um, there are times, and sadly, I know too many stories, horrific stories, where, where the neglect and mistreatment, or if you will, even abuse, was just any, every, anybody would, would agree, yeah, that was just awful. In some cases, it's more perceived, a difficulty, a person responds to more perceived difficulties. And there may not be time to kind of go into all that, but the key is, but in the end, um, people who are dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction often will comment on one or more of these things as having been significant in their lives. What we, if, if we had been there with a videotape and so could have seen what happened in real time, um, sometimes we would not have seen things the way that the young person did. 
Um, other times, though, we would have been um, horrified at what happened. Again, um, ne neglect or mistreatment by same-sex parents, um, by same-sex siblings and peers. Um, now, sometimes a more vicarious experience where one parent is abusing or neglecting the other parent, spouse. Um, or say an opposite sex spouse might be over-involved, uh, opposite sex parent may be over-involved with a child in some way. Um, again, so it's like different kinds of things, neglect or mistreatment by opposite sex siblings and peers. Um, and again, I mentioned sexual abuse already uh, as an issue. Um, what are some of the personality factors or the consequences of some of these things that may happen? Well, people with same-sex attraction commonly report they have a weak same-sex identification or, same, or, or they experience in the extreme same-sex disidentification. In other words, um, um, I don't feel like a boy or a man. I don't feel like a girl or a woman. Or, or um, it's not good for me to be a woman or a, a man or a boy or a girl. Different experiences have led a person to um, find it difficult to value their, their complementary uh, uh, sexual identity. There can be an insecurity with same and or opposite sex love. Um, I guess I'll just stop with that. There's so much I could say to explain, but I'll, I'll keep going. We, you can ask questions later on. But see, part of the experience is on the one hand, we would, um, there's a common saying that a person with same-sex attraction is often hungering for same-sex attention and affection and affirmation and acceptance and acknowledgement and so on. Um, and that can be true. There's their in, their, they, what they haven't received, they're insecure about receiving. But the same can be true also if a person received too much attention and affection or whatever from the opposite sex parent. That could also have been very um, difficult, it made it difficult. So it can be hard to trust the opposite sex um, love. It doesn't, doesn't have to be abusive or whatever, but it is what it is. There can be an opposite sex over-identification. Um, uh, that is, um, especially you think of more boys, but it can happen with girls too, where they find girls, whatever, for whatever reason, safer to or more pleasant to be around. They don't connect with their male peers and so on, and that can create difficulties. Then, of course, emotional, relational overdependence on same or opposite sex persons. Um, uh, same sex attraction among women tends to be much more of an emotional, relational overdependence. Than, uh, than it is for men. Not that men may not have it, but men tend to be much more involved, as they are in, in heterosexual things, um, uh, more preoccupied with sexual gratification behaviors and concerns. Okay, um, and then real briefly, there are some difficulties that co-occur that are comorbid with same-sex behavior. Um, repeated pathological participation in medically dangerous sex practices. One thing that's really, th these are part of what I call my, my um, uh, dad, grandpa, and uncle um, uh, concerns. That is that, that um, even though people know, like there was a time when, when no one knew about AIDS and that, oops, and that sort of thing, uh, now we know. And now education has not really checked for any length of time the participation in so-called unsafe, unprotected sex. Um, there are significantly more HIV and other STD cases. If HIV disappeared tomorrow, the, 
the infectious disease problem is just rampant um, uh, among people, especially men, but, but also women involved uh, in this way. Um, the irony and interesting thing is, is especially for women, um, women are much less likely to be exclusively lesbian, if you will. Um, and so, but they may be involved with men who, if you will, give them STDs, sadly. It's, it's an interesting thing that the lesbians would develop that, and in fact, they do. Um, uh, people with SSA experience typically more alcohol and substance abuse. Um, I'm, I'm told smoking may be up there too. Uh, significantly more suicidal ideation and attempt histories. Now, so in general, same-sex attraction is not without significant risk to medical, relational, psychological, and I would say spiritual health. Normally, I don't say that last part if I'm talking to a professional audience. I added here, but um, uh, the others are, 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 are like the health and safety issues are enough. Um, they're enough so that in my private practice, I make it clear in my advanced informed consent form that I will not refer someone to someone who is who the who the field calls a gay affirming therapist. I will not. I would not refer someone who came and wanted help becoming happy, engaging in, in um, homosexual behavior to a therapist that would help him or her do that. Um, because I believe the medical, relational, psychological risks, and or spiritual too, are, are too grave. Again, this is my dad, grandpa, and uncle uh, issue. There are significantly more mental health concerns experienced by people with same-sex attraction, including depression, anxiety, eating disorders, paranoia, and even personality disorders, what I call the axis two. Um, again, different, these are just examples of some of the personality disorders, but the, the challenge, the, the, the key, and um, the um, Neil Whitehead, who has the mygenes.co.nz site, um, he makes it clear, he summarizes a lot of the research for us and so on, and, and it's helped me understand it better. But essentially, um, um, his summary is that there is, it'd be hard to find a subset of people who are more at risk for a, such a variety of mental health and medical health concerns than persons with same-sex attractions and who engage in the behavior in particular. All right, um, other things. Homosexual relationships are more prone to overdependence and domestic violence. Um, the relationships, even civil partnerships or same-sex marriages, by the little research we have in other countries, they're less stable and tend to last shorter than heterosexual relationships. And what research we have, in spite of the, the there's like a, a, a mantra or a, a drum being beat by activists who would say that it's a societal bias and discrimination makes us suffer these ways, but the research does not point that out. In other words, I am not saying, by the way, that there isn't societal bias that's harmful, and that uh, especially growing up, if one has traits that are associated with same-sex attraction or that are, un, that, that are um, uh, sex atypical, that that doesn't lead to bullying and other types of things. By no means do I say that. But the point is, the, the stand, even in the, in the American Psychological Association, they will use this mantra that it's societal bias and discrimination that causes these problems. And in fact, the research does not show that. Okay, well, we can ask what does sexual orientation mean? Um, well, 
um, the APA says, again, um, I'm willing to quote the APA uh, as, a, as an authority to appoint. They say, it's an individual's patterns of sexual, romantic, and affectional arousal and desire for other persons based on that person's gender and sex characteristics. Um, I don't have it here, but in other places they go on and say sexual orientation is also about one's, um, uh, the core group one identifies with. It's about all kinds of things. Again, think back to what we said in the first talk, what the church understands human sexuality to mean, a variety of characteristics and things. So the APA will say that sexual orientation is not just about who are you sexually or, um, or romantically attracted to, but it's about all kinds of things. And then, but then they also say, one's orientation is tied to physiological drives and biological systems that are beyond conscious choice, my question mark, and involve profound emotional feelings. It's an interesting thing because it's, it's both true and not true. If anybody is caught up in a habit of behavior, at a given moment, um, the desire to commit that behavior may be beyond their conscious choice. So to a certain degree that is true, but um, there, there is no compulsion or addiction that it isn't possible to resist and to overcome with, with the proper human effort and guidance and also, I would say, God's grace. Um, but the, but the, the point is, part of what the, the, the APA tries to make a case of is sexual orientation itself is not changeable, but they make it real clear in other documents you can change your sexual behavior, you know, your sexual romantic and sexual arousal and behavior and your identity, but you can't change your sexual orientation. I'm not sure what's left sometimes, but, but those are points that are made. Okay, um, just a few points here. The plasticity of the human brain. We know that uh, on the one hand, the human brain is formed by early experience. Um, that especially for men, males, we, our brains do not become adult in whatever adult means until mid-20s. Um, for women, it'd be slightly younger, but uh, so when someone is graduating from college, um, we young men are not mature yet, if you will. Um, but also, the brain is changeable until death. That is, the word is plastic. It, ex new experience can lead to changes, and this is true in general, not just about same-sex attraction, but in general. So the possibility of change exists until death. Um, it's just something to keep in mind. All right. The APA says that SSA, again, is fluid. That's their term, not changeable, but fluid, especially in adolescence and especially among women. There's lots of research that indicates how women's, oops, sorry, women's um, experience of same-sex attraction is much more variable and changeable, if you will. They like the word fluid. Um, uh, anyway, the, the, the um, direct quote, there's other, there's other places in the material that I cite um, that you can get some of that. Now, um, all right, let me take a break. All right, now, changes in sexual orientation. Um, the APA would challenge, there's no good enough research to show that uh, professional help, therapy and other kinds of help are effective. Um, but, but some of the challenge comes with how do you conceptualize change? What do you conceptualize happening? Um, the National Association, NARTH, um, came out with a document in 2012. I, I referenced it in some of the material. 
But so essentially, if we're talking about a change, again, I, use, I would use sexual orientation in quote, but it is clear that on the one hand, change is better thought of as occurring on a continuum, not all or nothing. And this is not just change for same-sex attraction or for opposite-sex attraction behavior, but really for anything. Whether you're talking about dealing with uh, depression, anxiety, uh, personality difficulties, um, that typically change is not an all-or-nothing phenomenon. Some people do perhaps completely get rid of everything they, don't, they want to get rid of. Other people, though, may get rid of some of it, diminish some of it, or for a time or a season. Um, but again, some clients do have reported complete change, others no change for having tried to use some um, professional help. Um, the, the interesting thing, and in, in the, the, um, the uh, Whitehead website is really good to show on this, clearly studies show that many people change their sexual, call it se reported sexual orientation without any help professional help whatsoever. Um, and some people even change in the opposite direction, that is they go, um, uh, they will go toward same-sex attraction, who have, and they, they never experienced it before, but others will leave it. Um, and this is without professional help. Um, all right, but, um, okay, th this last quote, uh, many clients report achieving sustained satisfying and meaningful shifts in the direction and intensity of their sexual attractions, fantasy and arousal, as well as behavior and sexual orientation identity. This is, a, this is, this is an issue that, that the APA, Americans would not disagree with, that people do, but they would claim that it doesn't happen in and through therapy. If it happens, it happens on its own. All right, um, all right, uh, I'm gonna skip this one. But I just want to say, oh, well, same-sex attraction itself is not a compulsion or addiction, as I said. It may simply be a feeling somebody has, but, they, um, but many men and women do have a compulsion or addiction to, to same-sex attraction behaviors of some kind. And it may involve either same-sex emotional dependency and or same-sex sexual gratification. Women are more likely to be on the one side, men on the other. They could experience both, though. Um, uh, again, to help people resolve SSA, a therapist must help clients achieve abstinence from the behavior and learn to meet underlying needs in ways the client finds acceptable and helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I thought I got rid of this one. Um, not because it's not helpful, but you only have so much time. Okay, um, this, is, this is helpful in, in only in the sense that many people who do come for therapy um, or counsel because their same-sex attraction is unwanted, um, are experiencing a compulsion, if not an addiction. And um, Dean Bird was a recently deceased member of, of NARTH, but he, he wrote this about sexual addiction in general. But again, these are some of the experiences that people commonly have. And again, having these experiences doesn't guarantee you develop a sexual addiction or SSA, and some people develop addictions who don't have it, but it is what it is. Chaotic, under-nurturing families of origin. Um, other family members experience sexual and or other types of addiction. Experiencing abuse, it can be emotional, physical, and or sexual. Feeling unworthy and perhaps abandoned. Again, family of origin leftovers. Weak incapacity for interpersonal intimacy, being emotionally close to others, and dependency, that is being able to trust others in some way. Now, whom do we trust? 
the American Psychiatric Association, a little PA, at least this is how the APA refers to them as a little PA, and the American Psychological Association, the, a, the, the capital APA is all, uh, there are a lot more of them, I suppose that's where they, name, they get their name, but all right. Um, just briefly, some things. Um, <clears throat> in the year, um, okay, I, I'm, I, I'm going I'm, to, it's, it's in the material, so I'm not going to quote uh, words from memory, but um, the, the, AP, the, the American Psychiatric Association is responsible for the diagnoses we use. Um, in what's called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual ver version 4, they came out with, it, with their um, definition of pedophilia, which basically said it's a diagnos diagnosable disorder only if the pedophile is distressed by their uh, behavior. In other words, it isn't a problem if they do it and they're not distressed. It is a problem only if they're distressed by it. Um, I'm going to Dr. Laura, among others, um, challenged them. And then they came out later with what's called the DSM text revision, which is the current reigning uh, diagnosis pending DSM-5, which is supposed to come out soon. But essentially said, look, you, essentially you have normalized pedophilia. It's not a problem if, you, if it happens. It's only a problem if the pedophile is upset that it happened. Okay, understand the difference? Okay. Um, again, um, so who do we trust? Um, the American Psychiatric Association, again, I, I just think this is, well, it's absurd, really, but it's, it's comical. Um, in the DSM-4 and text revision, um, it is diagnosable and treatable if a person lacks sexual desire, is unable to function sexually, like a premature ejaculation or whatever, um, um, experiences discomfort in the act of, of trying to achieve sexual gratification, but is not diagnosable if they have too much sex. Um, so that, in other words, there's no place for sexual compulsions or addictions, including pornography. Um, the DSM-5 was trying to get hypersexuality uh, in, but, they, but at least there were some efforts, but it's been canned. So in DSM-5, we are told that it will still be a diagnosable and treatable condition if a person lacks the desire or is unable to perform adequately or um, finds it unpleasant to perform. But if a person has a sexual habit, uh, uh, compulsion or addiction, it's, that's not a problem, diagnosable problem. Again, there we go. Um, I won't go into the, the, again, the American Psychological Association at the end of the, uh, I think it's 1998 or 99, um, was, unanim was um, censured by the U.S. Congress or, um, uh, for a stand that had taken then in support of pedophilia. Uh, the people probably don't, it isn't commonly talked about or whatever, but it happened. Uh, and then um, there's things I might say later about the American Psychological Association and the 2009 Task Force and its subsequent report. Um, I guess briefly I'll mention that for a scientific organization, for instance, um, if you want to objectively decide whether uh, the treatment of persons uh, with, for sexual orientation is, is beneficial or harmful or not, um, guess how many of the six people on that commission either were neutral toward 
or, or actively um, had a positive value toward that uh, approach. I, the, is that what I'm saying makes sense. In other words, how many people on that, uh, um, how many people on the task force um, were at least neutral to the thought that it was a good thing to try to treat people? Anybody guess? Well, I'm sorry, N none of them were. In other words, there were people proposed who might be acceptable to the task force because they were members of the APA and so on. The task force was comprised only of people who had already publicly made it clear that they rejected the thought of, of um, therapy for unwanted same-sex attraction. Um, the subsequent report uh, does lots of things, but for instance, um, essentially they, they um, well, for instance, in their report on harm, um, on the one hand, they, um, the, the, all the Americans, all of the mental health professions will warn these days the potential for harm for people that would seek therapy or professional help for unwanted same-sex attraction. They all say there is a potential risk for harm. Um, now, how many approaches to psychological care for anything do you suppose have the risk for harm? They all do. Like how many medicines might you get to go to the, the pharmacy? How many have the potential for harm? How many have a list yay long of uh, possible side effects? They all do. Okay. Now, um, none of the, the APA and none of the, uh, of the um, mental health professions go out of their way to make it clear. Well, we are criticizing this particular approach to try to help people, but really every approach that we use for any of our problems also has the potential for harm. There are none of them who, uh, who th they do not say that. Um, another thing is that um, on the, the, the criteria they set for what is acceptable research allows them to dismiss 50 years of research, clinical experience and so on that shows people, some people have benefited. Not everybody benefits as much as they want or benefits perhaps at all, but many people have. So they dismiss all that and yet they will listen to somebody, uh, th 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 there's one study in particular that's notorious. Um, it was, it was initiated by a, uh, a um, newspaper ad that said, help us document the harm. Um, the challenge is, so the, there was no attempt to, um, they had no way of verifying, if I claim I was harmed by this kind of therapy, they had no way of verifying if in fact I even sought the therapy, they had no way of verifying if I sought, if I, what my level of, of psychological, um, maturity or um, health was at the time I started it. In other words, um, is, if somebody was willing to give an opinion, that, that, that if I could claim I, I sought the therapy, I could claim I was harmed, and there was no way of disputing or, uh, or verifying that fact. It, kind of an interesting way to run a study. But, but that kind of research is used, and, and, and that study itself is the core of the California um, hearing. That is, they're saying, Harm has been established, and uh, there's no way we can let children be, uh, uh, be subjected to this harmful approach. Um, I don't know if, if I'm describing this. It, it, again, it is as absurd and ludicrous as it sounds, and maybe I'm not even, maybe I'm soft peddling it there. The, re the reality is that in these particular areas, um, the mental health professions and the a two APAs in particular are really not very worthy of our trust, but there we go. All right, let me see what time we got here. Ooh. Um, all right. Um, all right. Well, 
The EPA came out with a practice guideline. Uh, think about the, what this says, that same-sex attractions, feelings, and behavior are normal variants of human sexuality. The EPA claims that these are established psychological facts. Those are, that's their words, not mine. And then they claim efforts to change sexual orientation that have not been shown to be effective or safe. You be the judge. Okay, how to provide helpful care. Um, uh, you know, I, I am aware that our time, the time I agreed to be stopping for questions is coming up here. And so the how, um, I'll say something real brief, but I will apologize in advance that I don't have the time to go further. I would be happy to, someone wants to see what they are, whatever. It's in the material I've, I've made available to you at other places. Um, I, the best advice I would give anyone is to please know, let's see, the, the bottom line is, all you have to do is be, a, be an ethical, competent uh, caregiver. In other words, the first rule of professional caregiving is do no harm. And the second rule is do as much good as you can. Um, the challenge with helping anybody deal with any problem, and that would include unwanted same-sex attraction, is um, get to know them, figure out where they're at, what they want, and decide what you can ethically help them do as the next step for getting help. I mentioned already that I am not willing to help somebody um, get the help of someone who would um, help them engage in this behavior more comfortably or happily, but beyond, just like I would not refer someone for um, an abortion, or, or for, for, for someone to a counselor who would help that person procure an abortion. I simply would not do that. Um, but, um, uh, but, but the bottom line is that every and any approach to counseling for any uh, I'm sorry, I'll use this in a second, um, is, uh, can be helpful. Um, it, it, whatever you know how to do, help people. Uh, we all run into limits and so on of, what, of how our approach might help them. Um, th this last this slide is kind of interesting. When we talk about sexual orientation change, the, the challenge, but really this is also true for any other psychological problem. Are we dealing with an on-off or a dimmer switch? In other words, um, do you go once and then somehow something happens and you know you're free of that problem or not? In most cases, it isn't that simple. It's more of a dimmer switch and a switch that may sometimes be dimmer, sometimes be higher, you know, it might be brighter. But essentially, we're help, you help someone with the law of gradualness. You help them understand how they feel and think and act. You help them slowly develop alternative virtues for meeting the real needs that even vicious habits may um, may have been developed to take care of. You help, some, again, people deal with the unmet needs, unhealed hurts, unresolved feelings. I have lots of other stuff here, but our time is not gonna allow me to go into that, at which fortunately I apologize. But, but, but essentially, these are tough times to be a mental health professional, to have a um, Christian anthropology, but even just a simple human anthropology. That is to have a sense of what does it mean to be a human being, which includes the, uh, a person who would live according to the natural law and the beatitudes of genuine virtue. But the, it's about necessary and possible for us to do our part. And um, um, there we go. Well, I'm gonna, uh, as I, I'll, I'll end with this. As in the 12-step programs, again, 12-step 12, programs first were developed as to group support to help people deal with um, alcoholism and so forth. Well, the initial goal of this, as well as even in therapy, may be sobriety like abstinence. But the ultimate goal of 12-step programs is serenity. I like to call that peace of mind and joy of heart. So it's true with all sexual, sexual vice. 
The initial goal of change may be abstinence and continence, but the ultimate goal is truly chastity. Father Harvey was big on saying, um, we're not just after white knuckled continence. You know, we're gonna hold on and I'll just say no, just say no, just say no. But the idea is to help a person find that peace of mind and joy of heart, which again, I, in my definition of chastity, is the attitude earlier, that um, f discovering how to live with sexual self-control in the service of genuine love, which yields significant peace and joy. Um, I'm not gonna get into the material, which would talk about um, uh, what, are so, what are some of my colleagues and I just uh, reflected out loud, not a, any kind of a formal study at all, but reflected on those who are able to, to make the changes more thoroughly um, uh, or, or able to even develop their heterosexual potential more, what are some characteristics of them? I could go into that if you wanted, but I, but I want to honor the time we had and I want to at least offer some questions. And if some of you question, you want to see that stuff, we'll get into it. But, but I would like to then uh, call a pause in my formal comments to be able to entertain questions um, from the floor. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.